0: Okay, fun time is over. Now we get to the dark stuff. Um, Thank you for coming tonight, especially because Rob Bell's doing an event uh, in West Hollywood. Um, I don't know how many of you bought tickets for this and then realized that he was doing something, and we're like, oh, crap, I've already bought tickets for Pete whatever. I don't want to ask for a show of hands. Cause I'd be too nervous about that. But uh, so thank you for joining team Pete over team Rob. Uh, woo! Yeah. Uh, I'm going to make sure you regret that decision for the rest of your lives, but Rob does not have free beer or energy drinks. So there you go. I do that. No comedy either. You know, uh, you're saying, when's the comedy? That was the comedy. Yeah. Um, Actually, Elliot and I are looking at doing a podcast together, there you go, called Nothing Matters, uh, because it, yeah, it's kind of, it's obviously a play on words. Nothing matters, like let's not take ourselves too seriously, but the nothing matters, nothingness matters. Hey, there you go. So it's all stuff around the abyss, uh, my favorite subject. So that will hopefully start happening at some point. But anyway, thank you for coming. I can't believe on a Saturday night you're wanting kind of like philosophy, existentialism, theology. Are you crazy? We could all be doing something much more interesting. But please do just at any stage come up and grab a drink. I'm much better when you're drunk. Um, I'm, I'm funnier. I look better. The, the stuff makes more sense, honestly. I promise you uh so yeah what, what i want to do tonight is and it is it's we're going to go pretty deep lock the doors right we're gonna um i i do want to kind of like i mean and some of you have been following my work for a while I, um, and so you kind of maybe know what i'm about but uh you know i started off about kind of looking at doubts complexity and ambiguity and kind of like talking about how we need to create a space for those things in our lives. And by the way, it was not ever that I was arguing that we should have doubts. Uh, The argument was you already have them, right? And the more you deny them, the more they come out in unhealthy ways. So it was never kind of like, I I was once on a a radio show, um, and I was, remember, I wasn't on the show, I was just in my pajamas in the house, and somebody told me that, oh, you know, I have to take this phone call, and I'm, I'm on this call, and it turns out, it's uh, a, an apologetics radio show, and we're talking, and I realize this is like three days a week this guy's got a show, and he's written like 10 books on apologetics, right? He's really into apologetics, and he's a lovely guy, and we're chatting, and, and somewhere this interview exists. I actually try to – I wonder if it was ever recorded. i have to find it. But at one point, he basically said to me, you know, so are you saying, you know, it's okay to doubt? It's okay to ask questions? I was like, no, I'm not saying that. I I, you know, I'm not saying you should you should doubt. I'm saying that you're already full of doubt. Why else would you have a show three days a week about apologetics and have written 10 books on the subject? You know, I mean, I'm not your psychoanalyst, but that seems like reaction formation to me. You know, reaction formation is where you you show the opposite of what you are. Or if you're very insecure, you threw yourself out there as being incredibly secure. If you're self-loathing, you know, you're always talking about how great you are, or trying to impress people. Or if you're full of doubt, you're always reading Josh McDowell, right? These are all, these are things, I mean, reaction formations. And so, you know, you never, you know, you have to kind of read the symptoms. I'm going to talk about that tonight a little bit, but read the symptoms. And my first book was about that. It was going like, well, doubts. An unknowing is, is at work within, this. particularly evangelicalism, was what I was interested in when I f- wrote my first book. And what I wanted to do is simply say, well, what if we give that space to breathe? Uh, we, we bring that to the surface, what, what will happen? So that's kind of some of my work and what I do. But there is an underlying system behind it. And, uh, you know, that's something that I've been exploring in online lectures in the last year. But I want to kind of talk a little bit about what that underlying structure actually uh, is. And to, to do that, I want to I want to start with this interesting quote by Tertullian, who once said, I believe in the crucifixion because it is absurd. Right? It's, it's kind of a paraphrase, but pretty much that. And this is an interesting phrase. I believe in the crucifixion of Christ because it is absurd. Now, pretty much everybody disagrees, right? You know, you've got on one side people who say, well, you know, I embrace Christianity because it's not absurd, because it makes sense. It makes sense of why I'm here, where I'm going, what it's all about. And then you have other people who say, I don't believe in Christianity because it is absurd. Right, but you get very few people who say I believe in Christianity because it's absurd. Uh, one of the few people is Kierkegaard, and uh, you know he's you know a great thinker. Uh, I heard a conservative um, theologian talk about Kierkegaard once, and uh, recently actually, and he said that what Kierkegaard means when he talks about Christianity being absurd is simply that it looks crazy for us. It's almost like saying if we all believed in a flat earth and somebody came along and said, oh no, it's a globe, Uh, we would say, well, that's absurd. So what the guy was saying was, Kierkegaard isn't saying Christianity is absurd, just it looks absurd to us. But no, I want to say no, it's, it's much deeper than that and much more interesting than that, and I want to dissect what this might mean. And to understand the absurd... Camus is probably the best person to go to. Camus is the thinker of the absurd. and He defines it like this. The absurd is our desire for meaning and purpose and significance. Our natural human desire for those things confronts a world that seems to resist giving us those things. And the experience of that is the absurd. So the absurd is not in the universe, a meaningless universe. The absurd isn't in your desire for meaning or whatever. The, the absurd is a technical term for the experience that comes about when you confront a universe or a world that seems to resist giving you what you would desire you know, a meaning and, and, and understanding, and a sense of place in the world. We get that sometimes in our lives, but then there are times when that crumbles, when that falls apart. And that's the experience of, of the absurd. Now, Freud has a kind of a similar kind of frame. Uh, but for Freud, it's, it's not merely an internal, external thing. It's not merely that I want meaning and purpose and significance or I want this or that, and I confront a world that resists it. For Freud, these things are primarily going on within us. We have desires and we have things that get in the way of those desires, uh, and that's kind of internal. Uh, Now, he had terms for this. Uh, He talked about the pleasure principle and he talked about the reality principle the pleasure principle very simply is the idea that we want things that will make us happy things that we we enjoy uh, if you're a child you want to eat chocolate all the time you want to climb trees you want to win all of the games that you play that's the pleasure principle the reality principle is the fact that you have parents who won't let you eat chocolate all the time you have Uh, a body that won't let you climb trees Uh, you know you're too weak Uh, and you have friends who won't let you win all the games that you want to play so you've got the pleasure principle and you've got the reality principle and being a child you have to navigate this a lot of temper tantrums and this kind of thing are, are, are very early attempts to navigate pleasure principle and reality principle and to try to find a way of navigating those two things. Now, what's interesting about Freud is he then adds something very significant. He says that the reality principle and the pleasure principle aren't actually opposed. That's what we think, you know, they're opposed. But they're intertwined. That actually, what gives us um, excessive pleasure, what really fires us up, is what we can't have the reality principle is what fuels the pleasure principle you know you if you could have everything you want if you could have pure pleasure principle pure pleasure without reality you wouldn't end up really happy it would be disastrous. it would be horrific it would be awful now, this sounds very abstract, but actually, it's, it's very concrete. Um, I have a few friends who have been successful in their fields. I know an actor, a Hollywood actor, who uh, the first time he landed his big Hollywood part, the very moment that he was there on the film set, he just experienced this profound melancholy. The very moment that he got to the pinnacle, the thing that he was dreaming, the thing that would be amazing, pure pleasure principle, the pure, you know, he got rid of all of the stuff, the, all of the work, all of the hardness, and he got there. And it wasn't something fantastic. It was actually quite lonely and miserable. And I know a, a sports star as well who, once he had got to the top of his game, he was like, oh, this, this isn't it. You know, once he got there, it was, it, it all dissolved away. You know, Alexander the Great famously, it was, it's not probably a historical quote, but you know, he wept when he realized there were no more kingdoms to conquer, right? The point when weirdly you get the very thing that you want without anything getting in the way is not this amazing experience. It's actually quite traumatic. And so for Freud, he said, well, then in a strange sense, uh, it's the reality principle that makes us enjoy. The very fact that things get in the way make us really desire it. Now, Lacan, who's a thinker that I uh, enjoy, uh, he he had a similar phraseology for this. He he talked about the object of your desire and the object cause of your desire. Right. So he said, if you if you split desire up, if it's an atom and you smash it, you'll find these two bits. The object of desire is what you want. Whether it's a house, a certain person, a certain amount of money, whatever it is, your object of desire is what you're focused on. And the object cause of desire is what makes you want it. It's what makes you desire it, right? Now, the object of desire is a thing. The object cause of desire is kind of like the obstacle that gets in the way of the thing. Um, I have a friend who, uh, she loves looking at houses. She's always looking at various places to live and all of these different places, right? Now, the object of desire is a house. But in an interesting way that you see from, from talking to her and from watching her that the object cause of desire is the obstacle, not having the house, is looking through the internet, going through all of these websites, looking through the different rooms of the houses and seeing where you would put things, etc. So the object cause of desire is like, it's almost like you think that's the thing you have to get through to get the house. But, but weirdly, if you end up with the house, you might find yourself with the object of your desire, but you've lost the object cause of your desire. And so therefore you no longer desire what you desire, right? So the crazy thing about life then is that, you know, some of us don't get what we desire. And so we're depressed. And some of us get what we desire, but lose what makes us desire it. And that's melancholy, right? That's why Schopenhauer said, basically, human beings are on a pendulum swing between boredom and sadness. Sorry, between boredom and pain, right? You're either suffering or you're bored. And there's the human condition. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So... um This is an important to understand. I want to try and draw out some of the political and personal consequences of this before I I turn this into, and we look at the theological dimension. Um, I I want to take a personal example. Some of you might have heard me talk about this on the Robcast, because I I did this thing on love, and there was a part three I I talked about this. But, you know, you take an example of a couple who have been married for ten years. This is a true example, but actually, I know lots of people who have gone through this. Uh, So, They've, they've been married for years and the desire is pretty much gone in the relationship. They'll like each other, but there's, um, this, this desire isn't really there in the same way. They're not sleeping together, et cetera. And then somebody else comes along. And so we're going to call these people Jack and Jill, right? Easy. Jack and Jill. Uh, and then for Jack's and Jill, no desire. And then Snow White comes along. Now Snow White is this a really interesting, intriguing person. And Jack really falls for Snow White. He's like, I can't go out with Snow White. I've got a family, got, you know, kids, can't do it, right? Impossible. It's an impossible thing. But he starts to desire and desire more. And then they have this brief affair, right? And the affair is found out. So now, if we stop there, very simple, very simple. Jack and Jill been going out. The desire's kind of gone anyway. Desire's gone. Jack has an affair. So we pause. And then if we were an alien from outer space, this is what we would think would happen. We would go, well, Jack and Jill are going to separate, right? I mean, Jill's really angry with Jack. Jack's really, you know, feels really bad and feels like the relationship's over anyway. So they're going to break up. Jack and Snow White are obviously going to start going out because you know, Jack and Snow White are obsessed with each other. They're always talking about how, oh, it would be so amazing if only we could be together, if only we could be together. But we can't. But now they can, right? So there you go. That's what's going to happen. Jack and Jill will split up. Jack and Snow White will end up together. That occasionally happens. But more often than not, and in this example, something very strange happens. The moments that Jack and Snow White can be together, Jack is now going, there's no way I want to be with Snow White. That would be crazy. That would be mental. She's nuts, right? (laughs) I don't want, I'm, I'm nuts. It's not, that would not work, right? So he's moving out. He's packed his bags. He's moving out. But now he's going like, no, this is not what I want. And then Jill, Jill's angry at Jack. She's frustrated with Jack. But now she starts to find him attractive. Now she's wanting him to stay. And then they sleep together, right? Then within a week, he hasn't moved out. They're sleeping together again. They're arranging little holidays away together. Snow White's off the scene. Jack and Jill are back in a desires kind of relationship. Okay, so what is going on? Well, interesting in a sense, right? For Jack, who's kind of an obsessive in this scenario, for Jack, the object of his desire is Snow White. And the object cause of his desire is Jill. Because she's getting in the way. she Because of her, he can't have Snow White. So as soon as you take away the object cause of desire, you take away what makes the object of desire desirable. And it happens like this. It can happen as there's always a little bit of residual desire, but it it can switch off like that. Now, for Jill, for Jill, the object of desire, once the affairs find out, the object of desire is Jack, and the object cause of desire is Snow White. Because Snow White is threatening to take her husband away. So now with with the object cause in place, she finds her desire for her husband, even though at a conscious level, there's anger, there's resentment, there's hatred, there's self-loathing, there's all of that stuff going on at a conscious level. But at an unconscious level, these drives are are moving everything, right? That's why I'm not interested in consciousness. And people, you know, we often think that w- what we are is here in our heads. No, 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 no. Your consciousness is a mechanism designed to protect you from seeing yourself, right? Your, your consciousness is a defense mechanism designed to protect you from seeing your beliefs and you are what generates you and what motivates you this is that's why you have to listen to your symptoms that's why you have to listen to your dreams your fantasies your slips of the tongue they tell you your truth (laughs) not this this is you know um a little aside but you know i i i get this a lot what do you believe what do you believe that's a question that i hear And I had a guy one me on his podcast, he said, I've read your books, I've heard you speak, and I don't know what you believe. And nobody does, right? Like I'm gonna pin you down, we're gonna talk, and I'm gonna ask you what do you believe, and you're gonna tell me. In fact, just the other day I got invited onto a podcast from a friend, and he had these questions about what do I believe? You know, what do I believe about God? What do I believe what 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 am I certain about, what am I uncertain about, what you know, all of that stuff. But my response is okay, I'll tell you what I believe. I believe I don't know what I believe. I believe that we don't know what we believe, that we are not transparent to ourselves, that actually coming to know what you believe is incredibly difficult. We we spend so much psychic energy protecting ourselves from our beliefs because, my goodness, some of what you believe is crazy. Look at you. I can tell you believe ridiculous things, right? Um, we So there's these three things. People think that, one, we know what we believe. Two, that our beliefs cohere with reality. And three, that we want to share them. I find these bizarre things, you know, like I want to share my beliefs. I think my beliefs, like, you know, how many of you believe that a duvet cover can protect you from a knife attack, right? None of you believe it. None of you believe it. Unless you hear like a creak downstairs and then you get all Harry Potter and think it's going to like magically make you invisible or invincible, Right. How many of you believe in monsters under the bed? Nobody does, except when you hear something and you don't want to put your foot down in case something grabs you, right? In a sense, you do believe that a duvet cover will protect you from a knife attack. You do believe in monsters. You just don't know it, right? You're just not aware of it most of the time. We have, we have so, like uh, Elliot was going to tell a story. He didn't actually tell it, but I like it, Um, it. It's uh, where he said, like I know, I grew up in Florida. He says, and I don't believe in God anymore. So he says, the only thing I'm sure of is that I'm going to go to hell, right? Um, like that's that's a, that's a structure I see. People say to me, I don't believe in hell anymore. Does that mean I'm going to go there, right? There's you know, like there's this weird thing where you cannot believe in something, but like unconsciously you, you believe it, um. And, and that, that's why, like, listening to symptoms is so important. An example I've used a few times, but I think it's, it's a good example of this. It just happened six months ago. I was having, um, I, I was going to meet my friend for coffee. And he asked, he, he, he suggested a coffee shop that was an hour away from where we lived, which was at the time in West Hollywood. And I'm like, why is he asking me to go to a coffee shop an hour away? And I didn't think about it. I just went. Went all the way there. Then when I was there, I parked the car, I went and got a coffee, and then I ordered food, which I don't usually do, but I ordered food in the coffee shop. Spent about $20. And as soon, as soon as I had ordered the food and the coffee, as soon as I'd done it, I was like, I wonder if there's a coffee shop close to where we live with the same name. Right? So then I look it up, and of course there is. There's a coffee shop. Why would he, why would he have a cup co- made me go to a coffee shop an hour not 20 minutes away, right? So like, oh, there's a coffee shop five minutes away. So what do you do? Well, you ask yourself, do I not want to see him? Because, okay, sometimes I forget things. You know, I can do that. But like, you know, that's a... One is I don't usually make a mistake that stupid. Two, I why was it... When I was pot committed, I I was there. I just bought food and coffee. And then I remembered when basically I couldn't go back on it. I go like... In my head, everything was fine, but I listened to my body. I was like, oh, actually, you know what? I'm pissed off with him. I didn't know I was, but I actually do want to see him. But I didn't know that. I wasn't aware of my belief. I wasn't aware of what was going on. It, it was in my body. That's what, It was in my symptom. That's where the truth was. Then I listened to that, and I went, oh, yeah, I'm going to have to talk to him about some stuff, right? This is the thing we have to do. If every time you're going to see your mom, you can't find the keys to your car, Right? you don't want to see your mum. I I had had this conversation with my sister because we're talking about depression and she said, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not depressed, not a depressed type of person. Like, fine, I don't think she is. But I was like, but you think depression is in your mind, is in your subjectivity? Like, do I feel depressed? like, no, depression is not in your mind. It's in your body. You can tell that someone's depressed not by how they feel, but whether they can sleep, the tapping of their finger, the the ticks that they have. The depression speaks bodily. In fact, if you can come to terms subjectively with your depression and go, "I'm depressed," that's the first step to overcoming it. Right? We have to listen to our symptoms, come to know our beliefs. And then you come to know your belief and the second thing's a problem. because I have beliefs and don't think they go here with reality at all. My beliefs are mental, right? Some of us will find out that we have crazy beliefs that we don't even believe. We believe them, but we don't believe them. <laughs> um, and then thirdly, we'll realize that some of our beliefs we wouldn't want to tell anybody. That's why we hide them from ourselves because some of our beliefs are kind of horrible. <laughs> and, uh, and so we don't just hide them from each other, we hide them from ourselves. And you'll only tell someone like a therapist, you know. So anyway, our beliefs are very, you know, we're not transparent to ourselves. And oh, the reason why I'm saying all of that is because I'm more interested in the unconscious, which I think is a, a biblical notion that your beliefs are not in your mind, they're in your being, in your heart. So a biblical way of saying it. So anyway, in this Jack and Jill and Snow White example, Right. Whatever's going on consciously is not as interesting as how desire is flowing in a new way. Now, here's the crazy thing. This has happened about five times. Right. This is not the first time it's happened. So weirdly, whereas we would say naively, oh, these, this couple are going to break up. There's this bizarre thing of going, oh, no, this is exactly what this couple needs to do in order to stay together. Now, we have to unpack Why? And of course, it's damaging to them, it's damaging to the kids. Damaging. So we're going like, oh, right, we're asking the wrong question if we're saying, oh, why have they not split up? The psychoanalytic question is, oh, no, this is what holds them together. So what does that mean? And by the way, another example of this that you might know is, if someone's very jealous, you know someone who's very, very jealous, sometimes what's happening is the jealousy is the thing that's the problem, right? That's what you think. The jealousy is the problem. Oh, this this person I'm going out with, they're always jealous that I fancy somebody else. They're always jealous that I'm looking at these other girls or whatever, right? But sometimes, no, the jealousy is the very thing that they need in order to keep desiring you. That if they got rid of their jealousy, they'd also get rid of their desire. That the jealousy, as in the obstacle, the object cause. In fact, weirdly, a lot of people will not just be jealous, they'll almost push their partner into a place where something might happen, introducing them to friends that they might fancy or whatever. Like it's a fantasy that that the person is always doing something. They're always about to do something. But the weird thing is that can be the very drastic, desperate way in which somebody remains. Uh, in, a, in a relationship of desire with their partner. Um, and so that's an hysterical response. An obsessive is different an obsessive. So hysteric, they have what they desire, but they don't desire it. Hence, they have to have someone who is, is going to steal that person away. The obsessive is the person who doesn't have what they desire. There's always something in the way. So they're the guy who always fancies somebody who's married to somebody else or who's unavailable because their desire is fueled precisely by not getting what they want. So these are basic structures that we all know in our lives in various ways. These are two things that happen. Now, this turns everything on its head. Because now you go, for example, gamblers. Well, they're, they're addicted to winning. You go to Vegas to win. So gamblers addicted to winning. But once you start to understand this structure, you go, no. Gamblers are addicted to losing. Because every time you lose, the fantasy of winning becomes all the, all the better, right? So if you keep losing, the fantasy of what the winning will be becomes phantasmic, becomes something wonderful and amazing. Just like the, the obsessive not getting the person they desire just makes that person even more desirable, right? The failure to get it generates this excessive desire for, oh my goodness, if only I got that, that would be amazing right if the gambler won all the time won the slot machines all the time they get bored cuz slot machines are boring they're just like pressing buttons and you know flashing lights you'd get the money and that would be great but the gambling would would lose its interest right see people there used to be this idea in philosophy what well, goes back a while but where people thought that if you educated people about oppressive political or religious systems then people would leave them Right. So, if, for example, people went to this is a big prosperity church right here, right? And I'm preaching prosperity, right? Well, okay. I, somebody else comes along and goes, I'm just going to show how it doesn't work. I'm going to show the statistics, right? People who go to prosperity church, sociologically, how, how many of them actually become rich as compared to people in the wider community, right? I'm going to show the stats. I'm going to show basically that it doesn't work. And then you think, oh, well, that'll stop people from going as if people are uneducated and don't know that. But from a psychoanalytic perspective, no, 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 no. It's precisely the the failure that keeps people enslaved to it. It's precisely the fact that you keep coming and not getting the money, not getting the prosperity, that makes that even more magical, even more amazing. You start to think about how incredible it would be if only you got that. So the failure to get what you want ensnares you all the more in the desire. And actually, here's the crazy thing. If you did get rich, which some people do, you'd realize it didn't work. (laughs) So the very failure of the system to give you what it wants is its success. And the very success of the system is its failure. So you create a political system or a religious system that fails to give you the thing that will make you whole and complete, that will satisfy you and complete you. But keeps dangling it in front of you. It becomes greater and greater and more incredible and more incredible. And you keep coming back for more and more and more. Enslaved by the very thing you can't do. This is why a lot of people who engage with my work are not the people in churches who sat back on a Sunday and just watched what was going on and whatever, right? They're the ones, who, the idiots, who did everything that they were told to do, right? I bet you I bet you, loads of you are these idiots, right? Who, like, burnt your record collections, right? Um, threw them into the ocean. Nowadays, I don't know what you do. You have to just kind of unsubscribe from Spotify. But in the old days, you actually had to physically take your records to the, the beach, right? You're the ones who maybe fasted all the time, read the Bible back to front, upside down, did a, were out every Saturday night doing the things. Now, the reason why, It's because here's the thing, you think that, you know, naively you think that the people who do it, they're the ones who stay involved. No, the people who always don't quite do what they're told, they they retain the fantasy that if only they did, it would be amazing. If only I did do all that fasting. if only I did throw away my record collection, if only I did give more away, if only I did this, this and this and went to that other conference and then it would be amazing, right? So you're enslaved by the, design, the idea that it would work if only you did it more. But if you're one of the idiots who does it all, then you realize it doesn't work. The center doesn't hold. If only I got into that eldership, right? They're all having cappuccinos with Jesus back there, right? I'm going like, if only we got in. I was in. I was in the study of the pastor Ryan, is in his office, right? There's nothing in there, right? It's not the holy of holies. There's not some God gas swirling, and uh, you know, it's like angels singing. It's just some books and, and like kind of an old uh, slide projector. Uh, so, but once once you get into the holy of holies, right, you realize that it just doesn't hold. And then, what do you do? Now, here's the problem. Sometimes you're so invested in the system, you're getting your money from it, you've got all your friends in it, et cetera, et cetera. So what you have to do is you have to just push all of that down and continue to play the game. Or sometimes you go, okay, where do we go now? The very failure of the system is its success, and the very success of the system is its failure. Um, and that, but the failure is the real success because when you embrace the failure of the system, you can then move somewhere else, and that's where we're going to try and go. But I realise we're not going to get very far tonight. I apologise. I'm already talked ages I'm sorry, but you know what? Who cares? I'm going to keep talking, but I will stop in, in, at quarter past nine. I promise. Um, but you know, we're going to see how far we get. But okay, so this is a system of desire that weirdly we are we are obsessed. Not with the highs and the wins, but we are weirdly enslaved by the lows. Um, I, I had a psychoanalyst and uh, a Lacanian analyst who I was talking to about a relationship I had, and I was saying I was said like it's like a heroin relationship. You know, I'm addicted to the highs, addicted to the highs. And she said she didn't say very much. She was Lacanian; they never say anything. It's like nothing, nothing. They give you nothing. You could be cutting your wrists, and they won't say anything. Like you know, And they have this famous thing, if you know Lacanians, they have like called a short session where sometimes your sessions can be three minutes, right? Five minutes, 10 minutes. You know, it's like ridiculous. Sometimes just, you just pick up the phone and they say, well, the session's over. Right? What? <laughs> you, know, you know, Lacan famously would do that. He'd shout out his window. Session's over before the person even got to the office, right? It's a, it's a very, it's a very um, uh, kind of crazy kind of analysis. But, um, but she said, this, the, one of the few things she said was perhaps you're not addicted to the highs. And at that moment, I realized, oh, maybe I'm addicted to the lows because the lows make make this person seem like the answer to everything. But of course, if you go out with the person the thing, you'll realize very quickly is they're not the answer to everything, even if it's good. It's not going to be everything at all. Like, you know, way we have this Western myth of like, a, you know, two two halves coming together to make a whole. And this is a deeply problematic idea for a variety of reasons. But um, I want to make, you know, those heart necklaces and you split them in half and you give one to one side and you hold it. Up. I'm, I'm actually getting, I'm, I want to find a, a, a designer who can do this for me. But I want to make one, but the two halves don't fit together. So, you know, you, you share it with your partner and whenever you bring the two parts of the hearts together, they completely don't fit. Because that's the more beautiful thing—is the failure, is the kind of, is the, the thing. But we we have this fantasy of the wholeness, the completeness, the others, and then it's devastating to us. And so, what we do—and here's the crazy thing—what we will often do unconsciously, we don't even know we're doing it—is we will create all manner of problems to get desire flowing again, to get desire functioning again. So we build into our lives destruction, chaos, disaster, in order to frantically try to continue to find meaning in life. Again, it's not a conscious thing. It's an unconscious thing because desire is partly fueled by not getting what you want. Now, in our in our culture and in every culture, I would say, but there is a thing where we misrecognize where pleasure is. We think that pleasure is in the having. We think pleasure is in if we got that amount of money, if we looked that way, if we got that money. And I argue not tonight, but I've already, I'm kind of giving you the answer without the working out, so you can't trust me on this. But um, but you should. Uh, is that my? I, I would say that that religion, in its popular sense, I argue, is that which gives you and promises you that thing that will make you whole and complete, right? That's that's religion in its popular sense for me. It's that thing that says, you know, if only you do the X, Y, or Z, then then everything will be wonderful. And that's why for me, LA is the most religious place in the world, right? Um, Because there's a priest and a prophet on every corner, saying that if you do crazy yoga practices or you take ayahuasca or you're famous, then you will be whole and complete. Then you will be happy. There's, there's promises everywhere. The tyranny of happiness, tyranny of satisfaction, which just makes you more unhappy, right? Self-help. There's always these courses you can do. Always this sense of I'm not there. I haven't made it. I've got to do this and then everything will be wonderful, which theologically speaking can be called, can be called living in the body of death because you're always... You're you're never there. You're always struggling, striving. Um, You're you experience guilt. Guilt is a very simple term. It's not magical. It's not some. It's a very technical term. It simply means you experience the gap between who you are and who you would like to be. Guilt is is just the name for not living up to some ideal that you have. And in the popular religious world, the response to guilt is to A number of things to give you a second chance. So forgiveness is give you a second chance to get to your ideal. You didn't make it, but here, have another go. Or you haven't made it, you did something that you you feel bad about, don't worry about it, it wasn't that bad. Or, well, it was, well, so either it, it wasn't that bad, don't worry about it. Or you didn't mean it. So don't worry about it. Or it was bad, but you get a second chance. So that's generally, you know, what kind of forgiveness kind of means. But, um, and this isn't the talk, but I'll just mention it very briefly. But but I think forgiveness in this radical sense is not, oh, I'll give you a second chance to get to your ideal. Or it's not that important. You know what you did, it's okay. It's actually grace is saying you don't have to do anything. There is no ideal that you have to strive for. You're not okay, and that's okay. Stop. Weirdly, that experience of accepting that you're accepted, very offensive idea to accept that you're accepted, is allows you to really change. But the constant frantic trying to change is the very thing that just destroys you, just makes you more guilty, et cetera, et cetera. The technology of theology is kind of grace, which is the experience of that acceptance that you're accepted. You don't have to change. Um. So where are we? We've done Freud, Lacan, Schopenhauer, all of that, object, cause of desire. Oh, yeah. Um, so why am I saying all of this? That I want to say how we are often enslaved to failure, ens- enslaved to not getting what we want. Um, that's actually where the desire is, but we misrecognize it. We think, if only I got that, it would be wonderful. But it's not. Melancholy is when you get what you want and you don't want it. Depression's when you don't get it at all, right? And that's that's just a real, real problem. And so what we do in order to cope with this, one of the things we do is we create scapegoats, right? Scapegoats, interesting thing. Um, Sometimes we love our, you know, loving your enemy sounds like a wonderful thing, right? But sometimes, sometimes we love our enemy like a hypochondriac loves their cancer, right? Now, what do I mean? A hypochondriac thinks they hate their cancer. They think, oh my goodness, you know, I, they're imagining they have cancer and they're like, this is horrible, this is awful. They're going to the doctor every other week. Every other always going, I've got cancer, I've got cancer. They can never find anything. Well, the, the hypochondriac thinks they hate their cancer, but they don't. They love it. Because they're fantasizing about it all the time. They're always going to the doctors. Now, they think they hate it, but they need it, right? Why is that? Well, in a sense, a hypochondriac experiences disease in their life, some sort of trauma. And then they fantasize that the, the reason for the trauma is the cancer. And then they fantasize that if they got rid of the cancer, everything would be fine, right? So that's the structure they think right? Oh, the cancer is making me unhappy, making me depressed. If I got rid of the cancer, then I'd be happy. But actually the cancer is doing the opposite thing. It's not the problem, it's the solution to a problem. The cancer allows the hypochondriac to not look at their own struggles, their own failures, but to put it onto this external thing. That's the reason why I feel like this, right? So they avoid confronting their demons, their traumas, their difficulties, their suffering by blaming it on this cancer. And then fantasizing that if they didn't have the cancer, it would be great. Now, just because a hypochondriac finds out that they have cancer doesn't mean they're not a hypochondriac. Just like, you know, you know they say, like, just because, um, just because you... Uh, well, what's the thing about if you're paranoid? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, even if, even if the FBI are right to get you, it doesn't mean you're not paranoid. As in, you could be paranoid... Uh, and the FBI are still out to get you, you're paranoid that the CIA are tracking you, and then you find out they are. It doesn't mean you're not paranoid. It means you're just right. You're right and paranoid. Like, if you're really jealous of your partner's doing something you find out they are, well, there you go. But you might still be paranoid that they're, you know, that you might still need the jealousy, you just happen to be empirically correct, right? So in the same way, a hypochondriac might have cancer, doesn't mean they're not a hypochondriac. They're just a hypochondriac who has cancer, right? Now, the difference between a hypochondriac who has cancer and someone who's not is the person who's not can fight the cancer better because they don't need it. In fact, they don't want it. But a hypochondriac is libidinally invested in their own disease. They need it to protect themselves from looking at their own suffering and destruction, so the question we all have to ask is, Is are we like hypochondriacs with our enemies? Do we need our enemies? Do we get libidinal joy out of our enemies? Are we always listening to the next tweet they're going to make and the next whatever they're going to do? Are we are we invested in an enemy? Because by being invested libidinally in the enemy, we don't have to look at ourselves. We can put all our trauma and all our problems, all that, that's the problem. When that's not the problem, that's the solution to a problem. That's stopping us from having to look at the difficult things in our own lives. So as a community, for example, we can blame some scapegoat, whether they're uh, you know, bad or whether they're not. But the thing that that allows us to do is put all of our internal problems and difficulties onto this other community. If only they were gone, then everything would be great. And we disinvest ourselves from the problem. We, see, we, we don't see ourselves as part of it. There's a, there's a philosopher called um, Alinka um, Supanchik who tells this little crap joke, but it's, it, it works to, to understand this, where this guy comes home and uh, he's tired after a whole day's work and he sits down in front of the TV, turns the TV on and says to his wife, "Could you get me a beer, it's about to start. And she's like, okay, right, okay. She gets him a beer. And then he he drinks it and he says, Listen, get me another beer. It's it's honestly it's about to start. It's about to start. And she's like annoyed at this point that he won't get up and get his own beer. But she gets him a beer. And then he, he does it a third time. says, Listen, it's it's about to start. Honestly, it's about to start. Get me one more beer. And she turns around him and says, Listen, you're just lazy. You're no good. Look at you. And he says, It started, right? So um the 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 idea is he thinks that he's just passively observing something that he's actually engaged in, right? He's intertwined in the very thing that he's just passively observing. Many of us, we are, in, in as individuals or culture, we can be invested in the very thing that we think is problematic. The very thing that we think, the things that happen to us that we think are bad or whatever, we can find that actually we're part of the author of those things. We're invested in those things. We're connected to those things. This is a scapegoat mechanism. Now, why am I saying all of this? What has this got to do with Christianity? What has it got to do with theology? Um, well, partly when what I'm saying is that there are religions of the pleasure principle, which are religions of hedonism, which are religions that promise you can get everything you want and everything you desire, whether praying the right prayer or doing the right thing. Religions of the pleasure principle. And there are religions of the reality principle nihilistic religions, which say you can detach from your desire, give it up entirely, etc. These are two attempts to resolve living in the absurd, in this experience of the absurd, between the, you know, what we desire and reality, between the object of desire the object cause of desire. All the, the absurdity, the craziness of living in that space is so much for us that we will be prone to going to re- religions of the pleasure principle, religions of the reality principle but for me christianity at its best is a religion of the absurd it is a religion that that invites us to delve into that space between of not getting what you want so instead of what happens that you're you're trying to get what you want but unconsciously you're always sabotaging yourself destroying yourself causing all of these problems because that's what keeps your desire alive in christianity i say the mood of life in christianity is embracing the not getting what you want there's a book by todd mcgowan called enjoying what you don't have right but is enjoying what you don't have enjoying the lack enjoying not getting the actor part not getting the person that you want or not having the relationship that's ideal right now how do you enjoy what you don't have how do you enjoy kind of what, what by the way i think that that is a political move Because I think our whole society, we're driven by this desire for this object that will make us whole and complete. We're always driven. We're always driven. But if you can detach from that and enjoy not having, you can find yourself freed from the frenetic pursuit of consumerism and all of that and all the craziness of life. You can find yourself detached from it because we're all like batteries plugged in, libidinally invested in this system. So what does it mean to enjoy what you don't have? Well, the mystics, one example is the mystics. The mystics turned not having into something positive. Doubt, complexity, unknowing. We're no longer negative, bad things, things you have to get rid of or tolerate because you know we, we were finite beings or temptations that we have to resist. The mystics turned those into things to celebrate, into something wonderful and good. It's a very, very simple move. Uh, you feel that you're unraveling, right? Say the first time you question your political or religious or cultural ideas, you feel like you're being pulled apart to unravel. Things are terrible. I'm going to lose everything. And the mystics, what do the mystics do? Well, they don't try to sew you together. They don't try to say fight that, resist it or anything. They simply say you're not unraveling. You're unraveling, Right? And to ravel means exactly the same as to unravel. To ravel also means to pull apart, to unpick. It just doesn't have the negative un, right? You're not unraveling. You're raveling. Enjoy it. Revel in it. You're raveling, right? All you do is you've turned the negative The not having. Doubt is not having certainty. You know, unknowing is not having knowing, you know, uh, all of these, these, the complexity, all of this stuff this is not having. But suddenly you turn it into something powerful and beautiful and wonderful. That relationship that you have with this other person that's not working, wonderful. You turn that into fuel for more adventures and more you know, you turn the struggle into something positive because if you don't, it becomes something destructive, something negative. But you take that struggle and you sublimate it, you make it into something beautiful. Now, why is it why do the mystics do this? Why is this connected to Christianity? Well, for a very simple reason. I want to just give you a couple of examples. But the very crucifixion itself has this structure, conversion has this structure. God is the object of desire in religion. God's the object of desire, what you want, right? Now, what happens in Christianity is you have Christ. Christ is the object cause of desire. Christ is what gets in the way. So what you have is Christ's scapegoat, right? Got got to get rid of Christ, crucify Christ to get back to God. But then in Christianity, you have this idea that, no, the obstacle to God is God. The object cause of desire is the object of desire. The very thing that you think is the problem, the obstacle, the impossible thing is the sight of the absolute it's a very very intelligent and interesting idea, and um, this is why i've got these little you know absurd crosses which have the, the, it's called an absurd cross because it doesn't work it 's like one of those impossible objects in art galleries where you look at a chair and it couldn't actually exist in real life because of the way the the lines kind of form, you know, that one, one, one leg is in front of another leg that should be behind it, you know, those impossible art objects. Well, the, the, the sense that what I did with this designer, uh, Clark Orr, is created this thing where the, uh, the two lines are the object of desire and the object cause of desire that are linked together. Because in a sense, what you have in the crucifixion is the very experience of the thing that gets in the way is not the obstacle, but the place where the enjoyment and where the power is. Now, the crucifixion itself is about this. The cross is the ultimate absurd object. Where the highest, right, you know, God, whose you know meaning and purpose and all of that stuff, dies, is crucified. That's an absurdity. We don't grasp that really now, because we don't grasp how crazy that image is. To say you carry the cross is, in a sense, to you live in that absurdity, that space of desire and being frustrated that's that space to carry your cross is to enter into that like absurdism has you find absurdism in music in punk punk is absurdism right it's the absurdism in musical theory it, punk is not so much something that gives new meaning it's what breaks open meaning it's what smashes into music and that's not music it's like what is that right punk is this absurdist explosion within music that generates all sorts of things. In politics, you could say Occupy is in a kind of an absurdist movement because it wasn't making demands, it was in a sense critiquing the entire system as it stood. Uh, in art, you have Dadaism, you have surrealism, that were art movements that were, in a sense, questioning everything that art was. You look at Duchamp's urinal, The Fountain, where he puts a, a urinal in an art gallery, and the idea is, look, well, that's not art, right? That's, what is this? This is breaking open our very understanding of art. I think Christianity is a proto-punk movement. The crucifixion is this experience not of creating new meaning, but of rupturing meaning, of breaking it open, of breaking it apart. But it also, this idea that Christ, the very obstacle, is the answer. You see this in the conversion of St. Paul, of Paul. When he's Saul, he's going the road of Damascus, right? And then he's trying to kill these group of Christians who are the problem. Get rid of them and then everything will be great. It doesn't matter that they were Christians. It's, it's, a, it's, like, it's not like Jesus had a thing for Samaritans, right? It's, it's the structural place of the Samaritans in the story as the complete outsiders that they want to get rid of that made them important within the narrative, right? So in the same way, there's this group called the Christians who are the outsiders who Paul wants to get rid of to get back to the truth. And then he has the insight, on the, this horse in the road to Damascus, Caravaggio as him falling off, and he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, God is in the obstacle. The absolute is in the very place that you're trying to persecute. So he finds in the very space of the thing that he wants to get rid of to get back to the truth, he finds the truth. The very structure of conversion is in a sense embracing Lack and doubt and unknowing and, and, and the, the, the very obstacle to the truth as the truth. There's a whole pile of ways we can go with this. I'm not sure which which direction to take. We've got a few more minutes. But that's that's kind of the core of what I mean by the absurd, the absurdity of Christianity. That the Christian experience primarily is the experience of of embracing this loss, just like the mystics. Embracing the doubt, the unknowing, the complexity, turning this into something positive and not scapegoating. Because what happens in scapegoating is this. We want to get rid of, we want to escape from the difficulties of life. We want to escape from the suffering and the unknowing. And we can't do it. So we find something to blame, that community or that group or that thing. If only we got rid of that, then everything would be fine. But it's in having that group that we're able to avoid confronting ourselves, right? As long as we have... So in the fascism, the Jewish community is a community that they think they need to get rid of in order to get to some kind of whole, organic uh, community. But actually, it's a Jewish community who hold them together. As long as they have a shared enemy, they're, they're able to avoid the trauma of the community itself. If they got rid of the enemy, they'd find that, it's not a paradise on the other side, but that all of the traumas are actually in the community itself. So the scapegoat is the thing that holds you together. It's the thing that prevents you from having to look at your own self and your own difficulties and your own problems. But when you psychically are able to, when you're able to look at your poverty and your brokenness and your unknowing and you're able to celebrate that, you break the scapegoat mechanism. You no longer need someone else to what's called the beautiful soul you have to make yourself so beautiful and pure by creating someone so evil and terrible but when you break that that scapegoat mechanism it doesn't mean you don't have an enemy there are some enemies out there there are some people and and groups and whatever that we need to fight but we're not psychically invested in them we don't need them anymore so we can actually effectively generate ways of of trying to get rid of them right and trying to trying to make the world a better place So there you go, that is what I mean by the absurd cross. So what I think is that Christianity is weirdly a space where we find a community of grace, where we embrace the difficulties and the the struggles of life. We don't think of God as that which brings us out of those struggles, as some sacred object that will save us and get us away from the troubles of life, but rather as a depth dimension in life itself. That in the as we embrace our struggles and our unknowing, there we find peace. There we find the absolute, there we find the divine. We have a couple of minutes for some questions. We've got about five minutes. Does anybody want to ask a question, make a comment in any of that stuff? Just stick up your hand at the back. Can you project out? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is the gets to the core of what I'm arguing. This is the difficult pill to swallow, actually, uh, is that in a sense, what I'm arguing is that one is that our conscious beliefs aren't where it's at. So actually, we're all the atheists and theists. Right. There's many people who say they, you know, they're theists, but, you know, they don't really kind of believe, and there's lots of people here are atheists, but actually they, they have this kind of, in fact, there's loads of experiments that have been done. Um, I did this in, in a secular group in Belfast, I, I did this thing that Darren Brown did, um, if you know him, he's a magician, uh, where I, I asked the people in the room, do any of you believe in gods, demons, devils, angels, any of that? And they're all like, no, nobody believed in it, like, really, you don't believe in that? No, no, no. And then I said, okay, bring up a picture of someone you love on your phone, right, kid or something like that. And then once I did that, I said, okay, here's in my pocket, here's an envelope. This is a satanic curse from the like 16th century. And it's, it's, you're supposed to say it over somebody you hate and, and terrible things will happen to them. But you have to like have an image of the person in your mind or you have to have something that belongs to them. So could somebody just come up and say the satanic curse over their loved one on their phone? Nobody moves. And I'm, like, saying, like, I'm not saying what I believe, I'm saying what you guys believe, right? All of you believe in this crap, but none of you. What? Come up, come up. Say it. And then I said to my friend Adam, I was like, Adam, you know, you're come on, you don't believe in this kind of stuff. You say it. He's like, no way. I asked him why. I said, well, I I thought he would say, oh, my wife would kill me. He said, no, no. He says, oh, I don't, I don't. I says, I believe words have power and stuff like that. Now, by the way, this isn't Belfast. This isn't L.A. where people believe that crap. This is Belfast, right? Now, mind you, You know, we all we all slag each other off all the time. Nobody in Belfast think words have power. We're, the, the way we show love is by slagging each other off, saying terrible things about each other. That's our love language. Um, But uh, so, and and he wouldn't have said that in the pub the night before, but suddenly he's got all j- jiggity, right? And something I printed off the internet and changed some words to make it sound spooky. And I, I said to him, say it over me. He wouldn't even say it over me and he doesn't even like me, right? So what does this show? And, I, there's, and there's a number of experiments in this. One is that's not a victory for anybody, by the way. Because, like, if somebody then turned around and said, Oh, look, look, they all secretly believe in God. Yes, but the type of God that, that the church should be rejecting, like, if any of you think that, you know, God's going to do something terrible because of something I printed out in the internet that you say over your kid, Paul Tillich calls that superstition. That's superstition. That's a ridiculous notion of God, you know, that, that actually, you know, for me, part of the ch- rule of the church is to get us over that, that superstitious, crazy notion of God. But the reason why I'm saying that is, I'm going like, we, at a conscious level, you know, we say, oh, I don't believe in any of that stuff. But then people do, just like in Northern Ireland, we thought we were over sectarianism. And then suddenly there's jobs are scarce and, you know, all of that. And suddenly you realize it's all there. That's why I used to be an evangelist and I knew this, right? If you want to get someone to believe You don't convince them, you just raise their anxiety, and then you let them convince themselves. And the smarter they are, the better they'll convince themselves, because they're smart, right? The the rationalization, that's called. All of this to say, I know I've taken this in a different direction, but I'll come back to your question here. Um, See, for me, Christianity is a mode of being, It is it is an existential form of existence. It's a way of being in the world. It's not connected with your conscious beliefs at all. Because like I genuinely mean it when I say this. People don't believe it. When I say, oh, we don't know what we believe. They go, Oh, yeah, it's clever. Okay, what do you believe? No, I really, I'm really saying like, you know, that 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 we are that we are largely not conscious of what we believe. And actually, it takes a lot of work to do it. For me, Christianity is more about helping you come to know what you believe. And then realize how crazy it is and free you from it. But So this is not theism or atheism or agnosticism, right? This is not what you believe, but how you believe what you believe. It's Kierkegaard's thing. He says, it's not about what you believe. You can believe stuff for the crazy reason. Back in Europe, we say Americans, you've got to love them. Otherwise, they'll bomb you. Right? So, they no, nah, I'm only joking. Um, but no, but the idea is like, somebody could say, like, believe, something like they believe in God, and you go like, ah, oh, well, I believe in God, and they believe in God, so that's great. Whereas you guys don't believe in God, that's bad. But then I find out that you only believe in God because you were told by your parents that if you didn't, you'd be put in an orphanage, or, or you would be, you know, not accepted. So I realise that your belief, even though it's the same as my belief, it comes from a really bad place. But then your belief is different from mine, but it comes from a really mature and thoughtful place. So, in in community that I set up called Icon, um, the idea was that what we're trying to do is free ourselves from a certain form of life, a certain sacred idol, a certain kind of like drivenness to this sacred object I mentioned briefly earlier, this, that, that makes us the body of death, this destructive drive this idea of what's called sin. Because this, this, sin means separation, lack. So we have this lack and we want to fill it. We want to fill it. with. Blah, blah, blah. And um, my work is about I say, no, forgiveness is not the payment of a debt. It's not filling the lack. To forgive a debt isn't to fill a debt. It's to say it's nothing, right? If, 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 I, if I pay a debt, I fill. So debt, what is debt? A debt is a nothingness that is something, right? So you, you, there's two types of nothingness, right? You don't have money. That's one kind of nothingness. You have a debt. That's another kind of nothingness, right? Not having money is one thing, but having debt ties you to jobs you despise. It uh, gives you, you know, heart disease and anxiety, right? To pay a debt means to fill the lack. But to forgive a debt is to say the lack is lacking, the nothing is nothing. It's to render nothingness into a nothing, rendering a nothingness that is something into a nothingness that is nothing, right? Which means, which means very simply that the lack that you experience is fine. You're not. It's not. I'm. I'm filling that lack with money or meditation or or uh, CrossFit or chakras or anything like that. I'm not filling it with anything. I'm. I'm forgiving the, de- the debt. The debt. then the the nothingness is nothing. Like if you, if you if you ever been bankrupt or if you ever been in debt, the the debt is not the problem. It's the letters, right? It's the phone calls. That's the problem, right? Like the whole thing about Oedipus. I know. I'm sorry. This is one question. I'm taking a long time, but I have to. Right? The Oedipus complex is about You know, a guy wants to sleep with his mom. His dad's in the way. So he kills his dad, sleeps with his mom. He thinks it's going to be wonderful, but it's a disaster, right? It's a curse. He thinks it's a blessing. It's a curse. What does that mean? Very simply, the the mother is like a symbol of uh, returning to wholeness, oneness, the oceanic experience of like divine oneness, right? Returning to the mother. It's a symbol, a symbol of that ground of being that you return to. The father is what gets in the way right the The obstacle that gets in the way of that the idea is you break through the obstacle, you get the thing that you think will make you whole and complete. you think it 's going to be wonderful, but it 's a disaster that 's what the Oedipus complex is that 's why the response to if you 've ever been on ever been on Twitter I'm sure you have, I mean you see these things you know you just do it, fulfill your dreams, you can do it right you can you can dream anything, you can be all that you can be. Uh, you know, in psychoanalysis, they go, yeah, absolutely, you can be all you can be. Go fulfill your dreams. Fulfill your dreams so that you can realize how monstrous and impotent your dreams are. Fulfill your dreams so we can all have a good eye laugh at how this ridiculous it looks. And, and fulfill your dreams so you realize it doesn't work. But then, so for me, Christianity or Judaism starts with an Oedipus story, a Jewish Oedipus story. Adam and Eve walking through a garden. There's a prohibition. Behind the prohibition, there's a piece of fruit. Eat the fruit. You will be like God, right? What does it mean to be like God? It means to lack the lack. You know, traditionally, God lacks the lack, right? So you get that fruit, you'll be whole and complete. And what they do is they break through the prohibition, thinking it's going to be wonderful, and it's a disaster. It's an it's a Jewish eatable story. It's a story of whenever you break through the prohibition, get the thing that you think will make you whole and complete. It's a disaster. Now, in psychoanalysis, you have a thing called the superego. What's the superego? The superego is the voice that tells you, if only you were nicer to your mom, everything would be better. If only you were having more sex. If only you were going out more. If only you had more friends. The superego is this voice that's always saying, just do this, do this, do this, and everything will be wonderful. And we think we need to obey the superego. But in psychoanalysis, no, the idea is not to obey the superego, but to get rid of the superego. To get to, to realize a superego doesn't have your best interests at heart, that actually that's what's destroying you. Now, in theology, we've got the similar thing. What what is that? It's a serpent. The serpent is the voice that says, eat that fruit and you will be like God. In other words, you know, you will lack the lack. So in psychoanalysis, you have the inner outer voice called a superego. In theology, you've got the inner outer voice that's called the serpent, the same thing. And we think that we have to obey the serpent. Any community where you're told that you have to do X, Y, or Z is a satanic community. It's a satanic church, right? A, but, and the idea is, instead of obeying the serpent, the idea is to exorcise the serpent, to get rid of it, to realize you don't have to do anything, right? You don't have to get there. The whole argument I'm making is that that's what Christianity is. It is the freedom from this lack it is the experience of being able to embrace it. It's the experience of being freed from this pursuit of the idol, the sacred object. That's what the crucifixion is. Sure, you have this amazing thing where there's a recreation of, of the Garden of Eden, which is the Temple of Jerusalem. You've got the Court of Gentiles. You've got a massive curtain behind it, the Holy of Holies. And then the curtain rips and you're in and you see the Holy of Holies and you realize there's nothing there nothing there the nihilistic moment of christianity and you go whoa but then of course there's the next step which is realizing the sacred is not behind the curtain the sacred is the depth i mentioned in reality itself so all of this to say yes this is not about um what you believe really isn't i think that's an interesting question but it's primarily i think christianity is a form a form of life cool so correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're saying that, kind of like the story of Jesus in the boat, like, God doesn't free you from the storm, but he, he's the rest within the storm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, in the sense of this is like, I mean, for me, the, 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 the Eucharist is the perfect example of this. And with this, I'll finish, because people are starting to have to go. You Please do leave if you have to leave, because we're at quarter past nine. Um, we, uh, in the Eucharist, you have this idea of uh, I do this in the Divine Magician, of three parts of a magic trick. You have the bread and the wine, the sacred, right? And in a magic trick, you have an object. And then you have, which is called the pledge. Then you have the prestige, which is the disappearance of the object. And then finally, you have the return of the object, right? So in the Eucharist, you have the sacred is in front of you, the object. Then you have the disappearance of the object. You eat it, you consume it. The sacred is gone. And then you're waiting for the return, and you're, nothing happens and you get up and you start talking to the people around you and you realize that that is the return the return is the body of Christ so the whole movement of Christianity is to move you from the idea of God as a sacred object that you love to God as a depth dimension you experience in the act of love itself um, so yeah it's that kind of it's that kind of structural that kind of structural move we're making one more and then, uh, go for it. Yeah. Um, so the difference between uh, Christianity, that in, where you can embrace doubt, unknowing, complexity, to one that, what did you say, that addicts you to it? Oh, so, the, so in other words, that you become obsessed with doubt, complexity, and unknowing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, uh Okay, yeah, because th- the whole point about this is to get beyond the, When I embrace, when I talk about doubt, complexity, and unknowing, it's actually to get over it and beyond it. It's you do that as the first step to then see what you really believe. So the first step is you embrace doubt and unknowing so that you come to know yourself better and go, oh my goodness, you know, I'm, f- I, I'm, I, you, so it's a realization of what you really believe and all that. Um, but, the idea is then to get to a point of a different form of life. That's the whole argument of this: is not to dwell in unknowing, but is is to em- embrace the struggle as something enjoyable. Um, I'm trying to think what what what's what's the equivalent. What, what do you mean by addicted to doubt and unknowing? Yes. Yeah, and they're, they're both interrelated, right? So it's not a question of you've, you're either kind of pursuing something that will make you happy or you're listening to the Grateful Dead in the dark with an unlit candle, right? And those are your two options, right? Um, uh, because they're interrelated. Whenever you're really dying, you're really dying because you don't have what you want. But when you're truly freed from the sacred object, you're also freed from not getting the sacred object, right? So this is why I use the example of an Irish pub as a a sports bar is where you're fleeing from your struggles and your suffering. You're out there, there's traumas, but you're getting drunk. You're talking to friends, you're listening to loud music and you get rid of the, the pain for a while, which is great. Just like a church where you're singing the songs and it's all wonderful, but then you leave and your suffering comes back. But then the other option isn't then say this other extreme an Irish pub has all the same liturgical technology as a, as a nightclub drinking music people but it's to a different function the drinking is not to get drunk and forget about your struggles but you have a drink and you talk about your week and the the music is not so loud and so inane that it stops you from thinking it's actually some sad irish guy talking about how his one true love died of consumption he'll never love again right but you're You're listening and as you listen, it connects you with your own struggles and suffering and you begin to, you know, work through it with with listening to the music. And the people, it's not about having superficial conversations because you can't hear yourself think. You actually have good conversations. And where would you rather be at two o'clock in the morning, like a nightclub where there's just vomit and smells of urine and that's just me? Or, or, Or in an Irish pub where everyone's having a laugh, singing along, playing music together? For me... That's, that's what is is like, in a sense, it's actually by facing and confronting the doubt, unknowing, wrestling with it, making peace with it, that actually generates a really joyous life. In fact, joy, and C.S. Lewis, funnily enough, of a Belfast guy, and he's conservative, but his notion of joy is joy is, enjoy, is kind of enjoying what you don't have. Joy is an experience of something that isn't there, that is pleasurable. Now, he then thought, like, eventually you'll get it. But let's take that out for a second and just go. Joy is not having something. There's an aroma of something that you do not have that's not painful, but pleasurable is something is something good. And that's 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 kind of what I'm what I'm talking about okay listen let's finish the formal aspect but let's keep a conversation going for anybody who wants to push back on this or ask more questions i'll be in that back corner and we can talk there's also more beer drinks all of that so hang around honestly i feel like we just got started so if you want to ask any questions find me out there if you want to attack me then i'll be over you can i don't know where i'll be yeah be over there and i have some apple thanks very much for coming thank you thank you